This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in London. I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast today Ross King to talk about his new book, The Bookseller of Florence. Many of you will have read his best-selling Brunelleschi's Dome, but he has written on a wide range of subjects, including Monet in Mad Enchantment, and the Canadian group of painters, including Tom Thompson, Defiant Spirits. In his new book, he returns to the Italian Renaissance. The subtitle is Vespasiano da Bisticci and the Manuscripts that Illuminated the Renaissance. Now, naturally, I have an interest in a bookseller, and so I'm delighted to learn of the existence of this gentleman and ready to be persuaded that he was illustrious. So, welcome, Ross. Who was this man? Well, it's, uh, I think booksellers or uh, literary people in general don't get enough credit. Um, and this is one of the, one of the greats of bookselling. Um, he uh, was a Florentine uh, who became known uh, by the middle of the 1400s as the king of the world's booksellers. And he really was the greatest manuscript dealer uh, in Europe. It was said in about 1460, someone said, that not just Italians, but people all over Europe, if they want to get a book um, and they want to get the best scribes to copy out a book and they want to get the best version of that book, um, they go to Vespasiano. Um, And so he was someone who had clients uh, that included not just the Medici in in Florence and other wealthy families in the city, uh, but also he dealt with the popes, Pope Nicholas V, who's uh, known as the uh, who reigned 1447 to 55, um, and is known as the first uh, Renaissance Pope, the first Renaissance Pope, um, uh, uh, and also people like Federico de Montefeltro of Urbino. Um, he dealt uh, with scholars in Hungary. He dealt with English scholars. Many of his manuscripts are now in Oxford colleges, thanks to the fact that he dealt with someone who became the Bishop of Ely, etc. So he really was someone who was um, uh, disseminating knowledge by creating these very beautiful manuscripts uh, that he sold uh, to the, both the crowned and the laureled heads of Europe. Well, what were his origins? You, 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 you talk about that a little and make it sound that he had very, very humble origins, which makes it extraordinary as a reader that he should have been so engaged. There are a number of mysteries about him, and one is is simply how he attained such eminence given his somewhat modest background. He came; he was born in, as far as anyone knows, in early fourteen twenty two. Um, it may have been late fourteen twenty one. So, uh, we don't exactly know his birthday, but we don't know exactly Dante's either. So, this is not not that unusual, um, going back that far in history. Um, uh, his father was uh, probably uh, a small businessman is the best way to describe it, who was maybe relatively affluent, but carried a fair bit of debt and died in 1426 when Vespasiano was basically a toddler when he was a child. Um, and he had various brothers and sisters, and his mother, uh, who appears never to have remarried, uh, was somehow faced with, uh, with feeding these mouths. Um, and consequently, at the age of 11, Vespasiano left school and went into the book trade, uh, which was, it was an, an unusual choice because his father had worked in the wool industry and the family presumably had some connections still with the wool trade. Uh, but somehow it was decided that this, uh, this 11-year-old is going to 
uh, go to work an apprentice with a bookseller. And so it, there's just no indication whether this was his off his own back um, or whether his parents or whether family friends or whether his mother or family friends simply said, um, you know, this is a bookish young man. He's very bright. Let's uh, put him to work in the bookshop. Uh, but it, if someone did say that, it was certainly very prescient and, and very faithful to give him that kind of education, uh, it, literally in the streets of Florence. And um, what it would have meant at the time by going to work in a bookshop was not what it would mean now, but more similar to going to work in a carpenter's workshop. That's right. I mean, his first job uh, was probably not uh, not selling books to customers, although he may have served behind the desk. Uh, but probably his f- the first thing that he did was manual labor, which was um, uh, stitching uh stitching manuscripts together into choirs, into um, uh, sheaves that could be then turned into books, Uh, maybe also doing things like planing the wooden boards. Because booksellers at that time uh, were, they were stationers, so they sold paper and parchment both. They sold ink. You could probably buy pens from them if you couldn't make your own out of a goose feather. Um, But uh, the other thing they did was took sheaves of uh, documents uh, and turned them into both notebooks, blank account papers, like you can buy in a stationer today. Uh, but then they also took on commission from writers. You could go as a writer with your sheaf of notes and say, find me a scribe to write this up um, and have it turned into a book. So they were sort of a combination of bookbinder, bookseller, publisher, um, and all sorts of things combined together. And so he would have been literally on the shop floor from the age of 11, sort of learning it from the bottom up. And and when you say educated in the streets of Florence, the when you explore that in the book a little, you talk about the high rate of literacy in Florence, which is fascinating as a comparison to other places. You know, it's very difficult to get good authoritative uh, sterling sources for these sorts of materials, but the and there is a debate in academic circles about literacy rates in Europe in general, and Florence in particular, which there is great interest in among historians of literacy. Uh, the highest estimates are around 70% of the adult male population uh, could read and write in the vernacular, so in the lingua fiorentina, the vulgar tongue, um, not necessarily in Latin, although I suspect Latin... Um, uh, literacy was higher in Florence than elsewhere in Europe. So 70% were of the adult male population were literate in the vernacular. And that compares with other comparable cities around Italy uh, and uh, around Europe um, uh, with, very favorably because they're probably around 25%. And then once you go out into the countryside, into the villages and onto the farms and places like that, literacy drops off a cliff. It's probably 1% to 5, 5%. And so you have a very sort of select community in Florence in the 1300s and 1400s. And, and you associate that with their status as a republic and a pride in that. Yes, the Florentines certainly took pride in that fact because they said that uh, uh, they were governed by bodies of men that they elected for these very short terms, for two-month terms. And they um, distinguished themselves politically and in some ways culturally then 
from somewhere like Milan, which was ruled by a duke. And so you had a kind of leader for life or what the Florentines called a tyrant in power, whereas the Florentines elected all of their government officials. And so in order to make sure that your government operated smoothly and that you had a good group of citizens from which to um, elect the representative bodies, you needed to have a good educational system. Uh, the, the great odd thing, just speaking about that educational system, is that Florence did not have, in fact, nowhere had a state educational system at this time, nor was really the church involved in it. It was all, it all seems to have been pretty much privately run by independent schoolmasters who would take groups of uh, groups of maybe 10, 12, 15 students at a time and, and teach them the three R's and things like that. If, if you take that and connect it with the revival in the classics, it's again an intriguing connection that the, the Florentine sense of the people and the democracy, if you like, um, or anyway, the ruling of the Republic, one associates with ancient Greece. And here we are with the revival of classical ideas. That's right. Florence, um, sorry, go, go uh, Well, as, as this, thinking back to Vespasiano, our bookseller, how does that rise in classics, the interest in classics, affect him? Um, it affects him enormously, uh, because, and, and he in turn will affect the course of that intellectual movement just through his prolific production of those manuscripts. Um, but what he did very early on was decided that what he was going to specialize in and what he became an expert in, um, which, as we've been alluding to, counterintuitively, because he did not have a great education in school after the age of 11, what he decided that he would concentrate on was uh, books um, of the Latin classics or the Greek classics as well, Greek classics in his case, which were translated into Latin. Um, and so his business model, if we want to call it that, and I do think he did think of it in that way, his business model was to take, uh, to find the best exemplars of the Latin classics, the works of Cicero uh, maybe being um, uh, exemplary in this uh, regard because Cicero was the favorite writer of 14th and 15th, as 15th century humanists especially, um, and get manuscripts of, uh, of Cicero and other Latin classics and produce beautiful manuscripts of them, and also, crucially, correct manuscripts of them, because, of course, the text of these documents, of these works that have been written on papyrus in the, in the case of Cicero in the first century BC, um, we're now 1,500, 1,400, 1,500 years later, and they've gone through permutations. They've been copied onto parchment, uh, probably in 400, 500 AD, recopied maybe 600, 700, 800 AD. And these are the works that are then being rediscovered in the 1300s and 1400s. So we have a game of Chinese whispers going on with Cicero and, and really with any ancient text, including, of course, the Bible. And so what has to, be, has to be done at this time is the text has to be settled. And that, surprisingly, you know, just to reiterate, given his somewhat deficient education, is what Vespasiano became an expert in. What he could do is get, so you would come into your, his shop and you would say, I want a, a copy of Cicero's book on oratory. And so 
the Vespasiano would assemble, you would say, I want a new edition of it, a new copy of it. And Vespasiano would then find whatever he could get his hands on, three, four, five, six copies of it, go through them, um, and then uh, get his scribe, make sure that he settled the variant readings in the text, and then get a scribe to write out, write it out, copy it out. Um, and so, I, as I say, he then influenced literature and ideas and culture because of the fact that he um, sort of affected a kind of step change or gear change in intellectual history by um, helping recover these ancient texts and then disseminating them, getting them into the hands of the people who wanted to read them. So he's, uh, besides being bookseller, he's crucially also a textual editor in, in, in our own terms, perhaps. And in order to do that, he's got to get his hands on these fragile manuscripts, which, as you say, might be might even be on papyrus in some cases, but in any case on parchment, which have lasted by some miracle, uh, not just hundreds of years, but in cases thousands, already by that point. So they're fragile articles. He's got to know his way around people and libraries in the most extraordinary way. How did he get his information? How did he get into this network? How did he know? Well, and again, this is an interesting thing about him, uh, his personality, uh, that sadly we can only really extrapolate from the evidence, uh, but clearly he had a winning personality because he, um, from the time he was a, a very young adolescent, he appears to have impressed some of the great intellectual luminaries in Florence, people with Europe-wide reputations. Uh, there's a cardinal that I talk about, Cardinal Cesarini, who uh, was uh, probably the most important cardinal um, in Rome in the 1430s. And he took Vespasiano under his wing, as did some scholars in, in Florence. Um, and so they recognized... He's very young him. in the 1430s still, isn't he? Exactly. I mean, he, he was an, still an adolescent um, and a young adolescent. He, he probably met Cesarini when he was 17. Um, and Cesarini by this time had gone to England. He'd gone to uh, Bohemia. He traveled all over Europe. And yet he does seem to have taken an interest in this young man. Um, and so what happens with Vespasiano is um, he is sort of raised up onto this level where um, he's given access to the best libraries. One of them was directly across the street from uh, his, uh, the bookshop that ultimately he would run, um, which uh, is in what is today the Via del Proconsolo. Um, in his day, it was known as the Via dei Librai, the street of booksellers, because of the fact his wasn't the only bookshop along it. There were um, other stationers and booksellers um, and it was, and, and uh, for your uh, listeners who've been to Florence, um, you will have walked past his shop in all likelihood, not noticed that it's a pizza restaurant now, uh, but the building is still there, but it's right next to the Bargello. So anyone who's gone into this great sculpture museum, uh, the Bargello will have walked past uh, Vespasiano's shop. Uh, but directly across from the Bargello is the Badia, the Badia Fiorentina, the um, Benedictine Abbey right in the heart of Florence. And it had a wonderful library, partly because of 
a great scholar in Florence who died in the 1420s left his books to them. Um, he left, left his manuscripts to them. Um, and so he, uh, Vespasiano, clearly had access. Um, there is documentation that when someone would ask him to get a copy um, of Ptolemy or something like Ptolemy's geography, Vespasiano would simply trot across the street, um, talk to the brothers in the abbey, uh, and uh, borrow the book for a month or two and get it copied. Uh, he also had access to the collection of Cosimo de' Medici and Cosimo's sons, Piero and Giovanni, who were great booksellers. Um, uh, uh, Vespasiano came to know all three of them extremely well. He found manuscripts for them, uh, but also he clearly had manuscripts to uh, access to the manuscripts that they'd already collected. Uh, and he also um, sold a lot of books on behalf of very eminent people, the, the estates of very eminent people, such as the Chancellor of Florence, Leonardo Bruni, Coluccio Salutati, another chancellor, their books passed through his hands. And so um, he, he sort of, he was the, the center of a kind of information network where he, he was sort of the, the I don't know, the, the Google of the, the 1400s, where um, he could tell you where certain manuscripts where he probably had some sort of photographic memory or something like that, something obviously impossible to prove, um, or he was a very good record keeper. But he, he knew uh, where the manuscripts were, and he also was skilled at the, you know, obviously um, he had to be emollient with people who he wanted to borrow their precious manuscripts from uh, and take them away for a month or two to, uh, to get them copied. So he, he clearly had uh, a winning personality and interestingly enough, never seems to have fallen out with anyone. I, one of the fascinating things about him, or one of the many fascinating things is his clients uh, were warlords in some case, like Federico de Montefeltro was the greatest soldier of the age. Uh, and um, Federico went to war with, uh, with Lorenzo de' Medici, um, and Vespasiano had both of them as his clients. He worked for um, Alessandro Sforza, who went onto the field of battle against Federico de' Montefeltro, and at the time, Vespasiano was making books for both of them. You, you describe a delightful moment when he's delivering a manuscript to Urbino, um, and uh, it has to come with the permission of Lorenzo de' Medici, with whom Federico is at war. Is it was yeah, so I mean, it's, uh, my editor, when he read the passage, said this was like the Christmas truce of 1914 in the trenches, because Federico de Montefeltro, uh, the leader of Urbino, um, had just tried. He'd been part of the Pazzi conspiracy, uh, this plot against the Medici in Florence in 1478, um, where they, they in fact killed Lorenzo, the magnificent young, younger brother, and wounded Lorenzo. Um, and Federico was involved in it, even though he was Lorenzo's godfather. Um, but uh, what happened is, um, uh, you know, for the past two years, Vespasiano had been working on uh, one of the greatest works of, uh, uh, one of the greatest manuscripts created in the 1400s, the Urbino Bible, which is now in the Vatican, uh, this beautiful two-volume Bible. Um, and it was ready to be delivered to Urbino just when the Pazzi conspiracy broke out. Um, and Federico was therefore worried that Lorenzo was not going to give him the Bible and that he would impound it. And so these anxious letters went back and forth. 
Um, and amazingly, Lorenzo, uh, to you know, said, you know, he respected learning enough, or Vespasiano perhaps convinced him that yes, the the Bible should go to Urbino, um, and so he was able to um, sort of uh, carry out a diplomatic coup by delivering the Bible to Urbino to the arch enemy of Lorenzo. It's a delightful interlude in a way. It's not exactly an interlude, but moment that because at the same time he's he's. Uh, Go or round about that moment, he's being he's sent off to Siena to do a bit of listening. Yes, yes. Well, I I said he was sort of um his shop was uh the cent center of an information network, and clearly it was not just about books. Um, and in fact, uh, there are letters that people write to each other, asking for knowledge of what's happening in Florence, and they always say or Vespasiano will know, or if there's any gossip, Vespasiano will know it. So he knew all the gossip, uh, partly because people came, his, um, you know, I was describing the way the bookshop was, bookbinder, publisher, stationer, all of that. But the other thing it was, was a library or reading room, but also a kind of coffee shop, um, because the intelligentsia of Florence would turn up, um, stand outside on the street corner initially, and then when Vespasiano took over, they would come inside, um, and browse through the books, but also discuss things. And there are eyewitness accounts of philosophical discussions and things like that going on in his bookshop. But it wasn't just philosophical. Clearly, it was political discussions, as I think we would expect. This happens today, and it happened back then, uh, that when you get a group of people together, they talk politically. Um, so he knew what was going on. He knew all of the gossip about what was happening politically and who was aligned with whom. Um, and so when there was the very delicate moment, a few years after the Patsy conspiracy, uh, when Florence was at war with, uh, with Naples, the king of Naples um, was uh, trying, also trying to unseat Lorenzo, um, Vespasiano was a personal friend of both the, that, that king of Naples, King Ferdinand, um, and so he had this long history with the Neapolitans and he did a lot of business in Naples. Um, and so when uh, the warlords, the Neapolitan warlords gathered in Siena preparing to um, attack Florence or potentially attack Florence, um, Vespasiano was sent as, effectively as a spy. And it does appear that his, I mean, this is, I suppose, like MI6 or something like that. He has his cover as the bookseller. He's just delivering a copy of Livy's History of Rome. That's why he's in Siena. But it, clearly he was in Siena to find out what the intentions were um, of, uh, in, in that case, the son of King Ferdinand of Naples, the Duke of Calabria. And was the Duke going to stay in that area? Was he going to try to move into Florentine territory, etc.? Um, so, yes, he had many strings in his bow, Vespasiano. There's a, a, um, the, the book is full of absolutely fascinating uh, asides, in a sense, I mean, the, the the primary material on Vespasiano is obviously pretty thin, um, and you you make many references to how the world, his world, was. And what, one of the things that suddenly struck me when you're speaking again about the Patsy conspiracy is that the the, um, uh, what, the street, the, the the wall of shame. 
Um, tell us about the, the wall of shame, which, which you refer to because it's right outside his shop. Yes. Uh, I mean, his shop was in the center of Florence. It, again, if you know where the Bargello is, um, it was beside that. And that the Via del Proconsolo today goes from, you know, effectively the back end of the, the town hall, the Palazzo Vecchio, to the cathedral. Um, and so it's this thoroughfare uh, cutting through the heart of Florence, uh, then as now. Um, and if you uh, crossed the Florentine government or you regarded, were regarded as a traitor to the Florentines, especially the Medici, um, you would find yourself on uh, you know, a fresco. You, your portrait would be frescoed, often posthumously, uh, because they, you know, after they killed you. Uh, but it might also be put up as a kind of wanted poster, wanted dead or alive. Um, and you would uh, um, uh, find yourself uh, depicted um, on the wall of the Bargello. And uh, one, one of the people who clearly wanted to get a job doing this uh, after the Pazzi conspiracy was Leonardo da Vinci, because Leonardo stood, Leonardo's father was a notary and his office was two doors down from Vespasiano's workshop. Um, and uh, Leonardo, so, and in any case, Leonardo would, would have come down the street and Leonardo went and watched one of the Patsy conspirators dangling from his noose because the Bargello is a place for, of execution. And I discuss in the books the grisly sights often that Vespasiano would have seen as he turned up for work to open the door. There would have been, you know, heads impaled on the door of the Bargello. There would have been people dangling from the windows, etc. And Leonardo da Vinci came and um, in um, 1479 and made a sketch of uh, some Baroncelli, Baroncelli who was um, uh, executed after they caught him in Constantinople to which he had fled. And he made his drawing uh, hoping to get the job of doing uh, the, um, uh, the, this, this wall of shame. Sandro Boricelli did them um, and Andrea del Castagno, a very, one of the great Florentine artists in the middle part of the 14th so this was a, a big feature of uh, Florentine public life as the, the wall of shame on the side of the Bargello. There's this magnificent contrast between the violence that is depicted and is going on all around them and the extreme cultural sophistication, not only with Leonardo and Botticelli um, doing the murals there, but inside Vespasiano's shop, where, going back to him, the, the, the fashionable thing earlier on had been Aristotle. But gradually, as the years passed, the scholars became extremely excited by Plato. And that, to tell us about this shift in, in outlook. We naturally think of Plato and Aristotle as, as sort of conjoined twins or the twin towers of philosophy. Um, and we always have them together. Uh, but in fact, they'd become detached uh, over the, the previous thousand years uh, to this point in the 1400s uh, because Aristotle had been rediscovered. And really by 1200, 1250, certainly, all of his works had been translated into Latin, most often from, uh, uh, from Arabic uh, in Spain, so not from the original Greek. Uh, but Plato was, had been lost to the West uh, for the most part for over a thousand years. Uh, and 
By 1400, only four of his works had been translated from Greek into Latin. And of course, very few people in the West in 1400 knew Greek. And in any case, the manuscripts, um, there was probably only one manuscript of Plato, um, a substantial manuscript of his work in the West at that time. It was only half the dialogues. And so there was a very small, and the Republic had not been translated and was virtually unknown. So these canonical texts for us, in 1400, even by 1420, uh, were not very well known at all. And so the great thing that happens in Florence, in the, and it does initially happen in Florence in the 1400s, is the rediscovery of Plato. Um, and it, it begins, there are a number of steps um, in it. The first one is they learn to um, read Greek. Uh, I talked about how Florence had a higher uh, literacy rate in Latin than elsewhere, um, at this time, but it certainly had a higher liter literacy rate in Greek because in 1397 they decided this idea of it's Greek to me, I don't understand it, um, we're going to deal with this somehow because we love Cicero and Cicero is forever quoting Greek, either Greek passages in all of his manuscripts. Cicero is fluent in Greek, Cicero lived um, in Greece for a time. And so we want to know more about this. And so they hired someone from Constantinople uh, named Manuel Chrysoloris, who came to Florence and spent three years there and taught this sort of golden generation of Florentine scholars to read Greek. And so the momentous achievement of Florentine scholarship um, in the second half of the 1400s is that they bring to light the all of the manuscripts, uh, all, all of the dialogues of Plato. They're all um, produced in Latin, making themselves making it available uh, to scholars all over Europe. The, 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 we'll come back to the appear, appearing in print, but the, the um, important thing also that besides the Council of Florence, the, 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 the meeting which brings the manuscript which goes to Cosimo, uh, in which Vespasiano is involved, um, there is then, of course, the no small matter of the fall of Constantinople. Yes. Um, and it's always fascinated me, me the sense of the Byzantine diaspora. What happened to them? Where did they go? Well, there have been a lot of things written about that, and it's very interesting. This huge civilization, highly cultivated, the inheritors of Rome, um, that they're the the inheritors of ancient Greece, the, the, the cultural ballast of 2,000 years is in Constantinople and suddenly is blown high sky. Some of it, or a great deal of it, lands up in Florence through this manuscript. I mean, and how, how, else, how are other manuscripts coming through? You referred to Vespasiano as knowing where manuscripts are. He must have been plugged into the Byzantine diaspora. Um, yes, he certainly was. He was very good friends with uh, someone named John Agiropoulos. He called him uh, Messer Giovanni. He always Italianized everyone's name. Uh, 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 someone who had come from uh, Constantinople um, after the fall of Constantinople to, uh, to teach in Florence, uh, to teach Aristotle initially. He also then taught Plato. Um, so he had connections with the, the culture of Constantinople. Uh, but he also was in touch with people like Poggio Bracciolini, who was the manuscript hunter, one of the greatest manuscript hunters, who 
worked, um, he grew up just outside of Florence, a small town outside of Florence, moved to Florence in about 1400 when he was a, a youngster, a young man, uh, trained as a notary, worked as a scribe, and ultimately worked in Rome at the, um, the, in the papal bureaucracy, the Curia. Um, but uh, Poggio would go on expeditions north of the Alps, sometimes on behalf of the Pope, um, in order to, um, and, you know, he, he would use his leisure time to go into sleepy German, French, Swiss monasteries to poke around on the shelves and see what they had. Because in many cases, if we believe him, they didn't know what they had and they didn't care about what they had. And so he would f find uh, these manuscripts, manuscripts of Lucretius or manuscripts of Quintilian, um, and write them out in his own hand and bring them back to Florence. And that's the way these things were being discovered. It's interesting that the ancient heritage of uh, sort of the Latin heritage, the heritage of ancient Rome, all of these works were being found not in Italy. Um, the major finds were all outside uh, of the Italian borders. Obviously, Constantinople held all of the Greek works uh, because everything that has survived from ancient Greece has come to us from Constantinople. And and indeed in in England this surprising connection there, there, you mentioned at least two um, bibliophiles one you mentioned who the, the, he then his collection then went to Oxford but also the surprising appearance is Sir John Tiptoft yes, um, exactly. who uh, I last read I was a kind of monster in the Wars of the Roses yes the the horrible beheader of men as he was known and well I mean going back to what you say about this combination of brutality and savagery um, that is difficult for us to imagine. And the, the, the sort of, you know, maybe we have too much of a rose-tinted view of the 1400s. This is the world of great art and learning and sophistication and culture. And yes, it was all of that. There were these very refined people who are um, spectacularly brilliant. Um, one of my favorite characters, Lassie, comes along only at the end of the book, so I couldn't really discuss him, is Pico della Mirandola, um, who was, I, I lost count of how many languages, including ancient languages, he could speak, uh, but he apparently knew, and I think we maybe have to take everyone at their word on this, um, he apparently knew Dante's Divine Comedy forwards. He could recite the entirety of the um, 13,000 verses, whatever it is, forwards and also backwards. So he clearly had a, um, a spectacular memory. And he's proverbial in Italy. They talk about the memory of Pico della Mirandola. Um, and so he had these brilliant minds, and yet in combination with it, sometimes in combination with this, in, <laughs> combined in the same person, you had this hideous brutality. And one of the great ironies of what was happening at that time was that when they wanted to find... The reason they justified finding this ancient literature, finding Quintilian, for example, on the education of an orator, they said, we want to go back to how the Roman ancient Romans did things. They Our society has failed. They had come out of what Barbara Tuchman in A Distant Mirror called, with good reason, the turbulent 14th century. They had come out of that, and there was the wreckage of the papacy, um, the 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 schism, um, the you know the Western schism as well as the schism in, with the Eastern Church, um, and the the Black Death and everything. The world seemed to be falling apart, and they looked back more than a thousand years to ancient Rome, 
and said we need to create the kind of society that they had because it's the most successful society the world has ever seen. So let's figure out how they did it. And so they needed to get the, the playbook or the guidelines, how the ancient Romans made speeches, how they governed themselves, how they educated their children, um, what friendship in ancient Rome was like, was like. They wanted to gather all of this material. So that's how they justified doing it. And I think we could say that is... You know, that might have been a very good game plan. But the huge irony then is they say we want to make a better world. We want to build things up um, and become uh, the good man speaking well, which is what uh, uh, what Quintilian, the great Roman teacher and orator said. Um, and yet these were, um, uh, in many cases, these the humanists were terrible human beings. And they had dread, I mean, Poggio Bracciolini, who I mentioned, is an amusing character, but um, he was, um, you know, thank goodness Twitter didn't exist at that time, or the, the abuse they would have directed at, e at each other. And so you have both on a smaller level, where in many cases they get involved in fisticuffs. I described the great um, uh, scholar, he was an Italian scholar, but probably the, one of the greatest Greek um, um, uh, scholars of his generation, Francesco Filelfo, uh, the way he was actually um, slashed in the street, someone tried to assassinate him, and it was all over intellectual quarrels that were going on at this time. Um, and so you have that level of squabbling among the Florentine humanists, and then that sort of mixture of the barbarous and the beautiful comes together again in someone like Federico de Montefeltro, um, who is this cultured figure who has turned Urbino into... Uh, one of the best societies in Italy. Everyone is affluent. He's a wonderful patron of the arts, a very educated man, um, a, a magnanimous prince who values artists and writers and who expends vast sums of money on them. And yet he is also the most feared soldier of the age, the best warrior in Italy, all of which might have been well, except for the fact that he was behind absolutely brutal massacres. In a, the, he uh, took Volterra in uh, 1472 and you know almost the entire uh, town was destroyed. And so you have this, you know, the, the, the savagery and the beauty coexist, which is one of the things I find so fascinating about that age. I mean, we could say that goes on elsewhere in other times and other places, but I think never before um, or possibly since is it combined in such a dramatic uh, way where you have the heights of beauty combined with the depths of barbarity. One, one of the, the shifts in attitude which you bring in in that context is the change in attitudes to money involved in the Renaissance, which you associate with Aristotle particularly. And that is interesting. How, tell us about that, how, what, what shift is, is happening there and, and its effects. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's an incredibly important shift in thinking, which occurs in Florence in the 1420s and 30s. Um, and it, as you say, it comes because of, well, first of all, let's look at the history of wealth. Um, the, the Christian church uh, looks down on wealth. The rich man cannot enter uh, the kingdom of heaven. And St. Francis had wed um, Lady Poverty, France, uh, Francis was married to poverty. And yes, of course, people in the 1200s in Francis's time and 1300s and after became very wealthy, but there was always a kind of guilt associated with it. However, when the Florentines began looking at 
ancient literature, they found values beyond the strictly Christian in it. Um, uh, and Aristotle, it was actually wasn't Aristotle. They it's probably a student of Aristotle. The author of this treatise is now known as the pseudo Aristotle, which I think you know unnecessarily denigrates him. He was. Um, you know, a, a valid thinker in his own right. So he, it's not a, a fake text or anything like that. It's just someone who that everyone thought for a long time was Aristotle. Uh, but as I say, it was one of his students. And he wrote about the magna, uh, about magnanimity and, you know, which literally means the, uh, the greatness of soul, having a large soul. Um, and that could be expressed through money. Um, and uh, to- he talks about how um, you... Um, that a great man can be of benefit, to, his wealth can be of benefit to the city and the citizens. It's in many ways trickle-down economics. The idea was that if you have someone very wealthy in the city, he or she um, can use their wealth for the good of the community. And also mm. they begin looking at pleasure, you know, the fact that wealth can give pleasure, not just to the person who's wealthy, but the person who. Um, that you know the person, his the, the tailor who makes money because of the fact that he's making clothing for, uh, for the patron. So the w- wealth becomes respectable, and its use, and um, display, which takes us back also to manuscripts, beautiful manuscripts, and uh, just before coming back to the manuscripts, another event that you refer to, which. Is is obviously immensely important at the period. Is is the fall of Otranto, the um, it, which is fourteen eighty, and it, right. again an event of colossal savagery and impact. What 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 happened there? What happened was uh, Otranto is in this southern Italy, uh, sort of in the heel of the Italian boot. Um, and in uh, 1480, Mehmed the Conqueror, uh, the man who had taken Constantinople in 1453, struck on Italian soil. There had been skirmishes in the north of Italy and near Venice and Friuli and places like that. Uh, but now Mehmed st- uh, struck in the kingdom of Naples and he took Otranto um, with, uh, if we believe the stories of the chroniclers, with tremendous brutality. He Mehmed himself was not there. And I would stress, Mehmed the Conqueror uh, was a very cultured individual. So once again, we find this wonderful, uh, this in many ways um, frightening combination of someone who is highly intelligent, highly cultured, and also extremely ambitious and, and did willing to... Did he, have a, did he have a Christian mother? Yes, yes. Um, and well, that was one of the arguments of his sons, because... Of course, the line of succession was going to be, was always going to be very difficult in, in those, always became difficult with the um, Turkish sultans. Um, and what one of his sons claimed is that Mehmed was not actually a Muslim. He was a Christian. And there were, there were overtures made to him by people like Pope Pius, um, who tried to get him to convert to Christianity. So uh, as this is happening with... 1453, the loss of Constantinople, then 1480, Otranto, the inroads being made, further inroads, being dramatic inroads upon surviving Greek culture. But meanwhile, in Florence, there's Vespasiano, the centre of a sort of spider's web, uh, making manuscripts 
of Latin translations of Greek classics. Above all, um, Ficino's translation of uh, Plato. But um, at the same time, the internet has been invented, um, as it were, with Gutenberg starting to print in the 1450s. So how did print affect Vespasiano and all that he was doing? Um, it affected him personally very badly because ultimately it drove him out of business. Um, and it's unfortunate that he did not embrace it. Um, he uh, uh, dealt in manuscripts, uh, for the most part in deluxe handcrafted items that were written out by the, the best scribes and illustrated by the best illuminators. So when the printed book appeared, uh, he found it, I, I think he found it an ugly, uh, ugly in comparison, aesthetically unappealing in comparison to what he was doing. And though he himself never said it, um, he probably thought there was all sorts of room for inaccuracy. He would always stress that the books he did were accurate. He would, when he describes his library for, uh, that he did for Federico de Montefeltro, for whom he produced hundreds of manuscripts, he talks about how all of them are accurate and correct. So these are the best readings. What he was suspicious of is that a printer somewhere was going to get a dodgy manuscript and print 275, 300, maybe even a thousand copies of it and diffuse it around Europe um, and, and therefore spread um, an incorrect text. And Vespa as I say, Vespasiano never quite articulates that this is his anxiety about it, but plenty of other scholars did say that that was a potential problem. And in fact, there are examples of this happening, texts that were produced with dozens, if not hundreds of errors in them. And so Vespasiano never embraced it. And the consequence then, not to ruin the ending of my book, but the consequence for him personally is that he he effectively goes out of business. He retires um, in 1480. Um, and it probably wasn't just because of the printing press. Uh, I, I think one thing he lamented, he lived almost another 20 years. Unfortunately, um, uh, he during made use of those 20 years because he wrote his Lives of Illustrious Men, his memoir or his biography, series of biographies of all the people that he'd known. But in it, he laments in the 1490s, essentially he's saying, all the great patrons are dead. Federico de Montefeltro is gone. Cosimo de' Medici is gone. And so in many ways, I think he, uh, when he, at the beginning of the 1480s, he looked over the next 10 years and thought there's no one coming up on the horizon in Italy uh, that is going to become my patron and for whom I will uh, produce all of those books. So he retired um, at that point, closed up shop, or gave, really gave the shop to someone else, um, under whom it never enjoyed the sort of prestige that it had under him, and went off to the country, his house outside of Florence, and um, uh, made uh, his somewhat bitter musings about the printing press. His, one of his comments is that a printed book would be ashamed to be in the company of one of his beautiful manuscripts. Um, and then, as I say, also wrote his gossipy anecdotes about all of the famous people he'd known in the course of his long career as a bookseller. The, um, well, one has the impression of uh, somebody who's become disillusioned as the world has shifted under his feet. 
which is not an uncommon phenomenon. But he, um, he, he uh, you, you quoted lines that the humanism is a light that failed to bring salvation for him, which is interesting, but not least because it suggests that he had a coherent idea of a project of called humanism on which he was engaged. That's absolutely true. He, uh, maybe one way of thinking of how he became expert, to circle back to the, the first sort of question you had about him, he was fully involved in the intellectual life of Florence, and he um, he belonged to multiple book clubs or reading groups or discussion groups, Zoom, Zoom discussions we can imagine him having, uh, where he um, and all sorts of other like-minded people would get together um, in a palazzo in Florence or often one in the country. They would retire essentially for weekends, go into the country um, and talk about books. And so he was a fully paid-up member of the humanist group, uh, believing, as he said, what he said these books, the ancient works can help us to live a better life. Um, and so he fully believed all of this. But by the 1470s, he looked back at the last 40 or 50 years of history, or looked out of his window and saw the bodies dangling from the Bargello and saw the wall of shame with the images of executed enemies of the Medici. Um, and he saw, I mean, I describe how literally across the, the street from his shop, um, uh, they stuck the naked bodies of anti-Medici conspirators um, in the window. I mean, all this sort of gruesome spectacle, this theater of horror you could see on every street corner in Florence, but especially uh, from the window of his shop, it seems. Um, he seems to have understandably become disillusioned with life. I think he, um, when he looked at the people and saw the beauty and the horror combined in a single person, he became very disillusioned. Um, and his, his recipe towards the end of his life was Christianity. He wanted to, he thought that Christianity um, was was going to give answers that the ancients apparently had not. And I think he became increasingly disillusioned with the secularism um, of which he had been such a strong promoter over the previous 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and because there was a kind of um, Old Testament prophet style to some of his writings in the 1480s and 1490s, a sort of woe unto Florence, uh, turn your footsteps back, uh, look at the light of Christ. Whereas earlier, you know, 30 or 40 years earlier, they were going to be saved by Cicero, Quintilian, Plato, and Aristotle. And I think he um, uh, he lost faith in the ancients, in the ancient classical literature, and I think um, is, is a representative of um, the um, Richard Trexler, a great uh, historian of... Um, of, of the of Renaissance Florence has talked about the way it's so easy for us to fast forward people from the 1400s into the present and say that they were all turning into what we are today, sort of godless heathens. And Trexler argues that no, they were, there was this deep, deep bedrock of Christianity that all of them had. And I describe in the book the, the sort of reverence that, um, and the, 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 the devout and believing Christian. Uh, people like Marsilio Ficino and Coluccio Salutati, all of these peoples were hu were humanists, but also Christians. And that was Ves Vespasiano as well. I mean, his 
his faith in the ancients was shaken, but his faith in um, the Christian faith appears not to have been. As he retires from the bookselling world, he, he writes his, his sequence of biographies of contemporaries. But the record of, of Vespasiano da Bistici ceased to exist, in a manner of speaking. So how did you, where does your book come from? How did you resurrect this man? I mean, 200 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody knew who this person was. Right, well, I mean, this is the, this is the great, I mean, there's so many ironies to him. Um, and one of it is when he sits down in his beautiful house outside of Florence, which still exists, when he sits down there and begins penning his memoirs, he decides that he's going to write about all the famous people he's known. And he says, I have to do this um, because, so that they will be remembered. And he writes not just about uh, King Ferdinand of Naples, not just about Cosimo de' Medici, Pope Pius uh, II and Nicholas V, not about all the, the big names who are going to be written about anyway and who are in the historical record. He also writes about the scholars that he's known um, Janusz Pannonius from Hungary, uh, John Tiptoff, uh, people like that that he might not have thought were going to have any kind of posterity. So he says, I'm going to write in order to celebrate them. Um, and so he does. But of course, he does not give it to the printing press. He doesn't have it <laughs> printed because he doesn't believe in the printing press. And so, of course, it disappears from history. Um, it was fortunate. One, one manuscript? Well, there was one manuscript that appeared, or there were a couple. Um, and because he would write out, um, ultimately, there were 103 lives that he wrote about, um, but he appears to have circulated it before he'd done all 103. And so there were a number floating around, <clears throat> but then ultimately, you know, a, a number of them became lost. But fortunately, someone a century or so later, uh, the manuscript is in the Vatican, um, and the Vatican isn't quite sure when to date it. I think they guess it's probably 1580s. Someone wrote um, it out. Once again, it was not published. It was simply written out in manuscript and ended up in the Vatican Library, where it sat gathering dust for centuries until um, in the early 19th century, a great scholar who became a cardinal, um, he was a, and, and who was known for making dramatic discoveries, uh, often in the Vatican Library, but other libraries in Italy. He was an extremely erudite uh, priest, Angelo Mai, M-A-I, um, which oddly means never um, in Italian. Um, he uh, uh, found uh, Vespasiano's manuscript and was intrigued by it um, and ultimately then had it published. Um, and the great posterity, um, maybe the, the greatest claim Vespasiano has to fame then is that this manuscript uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, this printed book, when it was finally printed in Italy um, in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, was read by someone who'd come to Rome from Switzerland uh, to do some research and writing, um, found it, read it, and that was Jakob Burkhardt, who I'm sure many of your listeners know, who's the man who um, wrote the uh, one of the great um, histories of I think one of the great histories in general, one of these great German 19th century histories uh, where he wrote, uh, wrote Civilization of the uh, Renaissance in Italy um, and uh, really 
made, he didn't coin the word Renaissance. He got it from Jules Michelet, the French historian who'd used it a decade earlier, but it was really Burkhardt's work that uh, popularized it. And Burkhardt was very adamant um, and uh, uh, emphatic about the fact that um, it was Vespasiano's work that had inspired him to write this book because he read it um, and, sat, and was electrified by it. And it is, it is great reading. Um, uh, it, there hasn't been an, a recent English translation. English translations must be close to a century old and it's very stilted and everything like that. Um, but it, Burkhart was electrified by what he read and decided that he was going to um, write about Florence in the 1400s and the new ideas that were circulating at that time. And that then really gave life to um, the, uh, the idea that we have today of the Renaissance. And I, I suppose once you, once you know what you're looking for with Vespasiano, you see his name in manuscripts, in letters, and you start stitching it together. But That's right. your, yes. your, your pursuit must have been an intricate one. It was. It, it. I mean, it. It dates back quite a few years because I wanted to. I wanted to tell this story. Um, the. Uh, I read Burkhardt years ago, decades ago, probably, um, and 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 found it such an. Historians have refined it and um, nuanced it and everything like that. It's still a great story of um, this new idea that takes shape in the West in the fourteen hundreds. So I wanted to look at that and look at some of the characters in 15th century Florence. Um, and I mean, if you find if you get a biography of uh, Cosimo de' Medici or one of Christopher Hibbert's books on 15th century Florence, you'll often find references to Vespasiano da Bistici. Um, and it's usually called it. it there's always an, an epithet accompanying it, um, which is. Cosmo de Medici's favorite bookseller. And I think Stephen Greenblatt might call him that in The Swerve. Um, but luckily for me, Greenblatt does not mention him beyond saying that he was Cosmo de Medici's favorite bookseller. Um, and so I realized that I could use um, Vespasiano as a kind of opening onto uh, manuscript culture in the 1400s, but also the political history, because what he gave me with his political involvement and with his friendships with all of the political figures in Italy at that time, um, it, it gave me an excuse to, uh, or permission to talk about the political events that were happening at that time, uh, because I have Vespasiano's responses to it, and also his involvement in, his direct involvement in a number of them. It is an absolutely fascinating portrayal of the daily traffic between the commercial and the intellectual but, but, and the political. And I think we should uh, call a halt there. And I should say, Ross, thank you very much indeed for taking this time to talk to us. We haven't had any time to talk about the uh, construction of the books themselves, the writing, the scribes, the illuminators, the uh, goats involved in parchment. There's a great deal in this book um, that, to divert, horrify, fascinate, amuse. It's an absolutely entrancing book. Um, Ross has also kindly signed book plates for us, so do let us know if you would like a copy. Um, 
And the book itself is very handsomely published by Chatto with fine illustrations at £25. Do let us know if you'd like a copy. Meanwhile, thank you very much indeed, Ross King. My pleasure. Thank you, Johnny.